One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Elizabeth Strout, author of the novel Lucy by the Sea. Her voice came to me, not so much her character, but her voice. And then I realized her voice is her character. And her voice felt like a very thin gold thread that sort of came down in front of me. And if I could catch that voice, then I could be with Lucy. I could do her on the page. We'll be back with Elizabeth Strout after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create a first draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart 
to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say, it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Elizabeth Strout, author of nine books, including Olive Kittredge, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009, and O. William, which was named as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review and the Washington Post and was nominated for a Booker Prize. Other titles include My Name is Lucy Barton, The Burgess Boys, Amy and Isabel, and Abide With Me. Her novels and short story collections revisit the same characters from book to book, although their roles might be central or in the background, depending on the story. All take place primarily in Maine, and as of late, have focused on the character of Lucy Barton. Her newest book, Lucy by the Sea, tells the story of Barton during the pandemic when she escapes New York with her ex-husband William and head to Maine, where in some circles, they are not welcome. They spend months together in a little house by the sea, feeling the claustrophobia and the fear of the pandemic alongside moments of hope. Lucy, a writer, is thinking deeply about her work, the political climate, the death of her second husband, her daughter's health and safety, and her relationship with William. She spends her days with a lot of quiet, slowly forging deeper friendships with her neighbors and a deeper relationship with William. She is confronted with death, loss, and suffering, and finding a way to find peace amidst the chaos. We began the discussion with Elizabeth Strout reading a short passage from Lucy by the Sea, where Lucy is thinking about her craft as a writer. I need to say, this is the question that has made me a writer. Always that deep desire to know what it feels like to be a different person. And I could not stop feeling a fascination for this man who seemed to be in his 50s with a decent face and strong looking arms. In a way that is not uncommon for me as a writer, I sort of began to feel what it was like to be inside his skin I know it sounds very strange, but it is almost as though I could feel my molecules go into him and his come into me. So I wanted to ask you about that. That is in the voice of your main character, Lucy Barton. And she is also a writer and a very introspective, thoughtful person. And I wanted to ask if that is your experience of writing. If you could that is actually my experience of writing. In that way, in that way, that paragraph is... is um, Liz Trout and Lucy together. Otherwise, you know, she's Lucy and I'm Liz Trout. But that paragraph is 
that is what makes me want to be a writer is to always thinking, always trying to find out what it's like to be another person. And I've always been curious about that. You know, so much about this show, we talk about empathy and that writing is really an act of empathy and it's an exercise in what it means to be human. I'm wondering if you could share more about how you, maybe how you develop that as a person. I don't know if you're a really inquisitive child, if, you know, trying to picture what it was like to be other people in other people's shoes was an exercise you've always done. Yeah, you know, I think honestly, since my earliest memory, or on, I mean, not probably my earliest memory, but from way, way back in childhood, I have always wondered what it was like to be another person. And I can remember, I remember being in the car with my mother while my father went into um, some store, did some business or something. And this woman walked by on the sidewalk, and my mother said, Oh, look at her. She's depressed. And I said, How do you know? And she said, Well, look at her coat. The hem is, you know, all loose and raggedy. And so I looked and I looked. And I remember honestly watching that woman and wanting to follow her home. And I remember trying to imagine what it was like when she stepped through the door, what her little hallway might be like. I wondered if she had pom-poms on the shower curtain of her bathroom. I mean, that I, I can remember desperately wanting to know what these other people's lives were like from way back. So it's something that has always been there. And then as I got older and I realized, wow, you know, I'm never going to know what it's like to be another person. I, I, you know, that conscious understanding that I was only going to be able to see the world through my own eyes was so frustrating for me because um, all I just want to see so much what it feels like to be in somebody else's head. And then when I began to read books, I realized, oh, this is one way that um, we can possibly get inside somebody else's head. You know, there's so many things that you could do that with. There's so many ways you could explore that. Like you could be a psychologist. You could be an actress. I know you did stand up because we talked about that. Um, Right. And I was interested in acting in college. And I was was very interested in theater for a while. And again, I think it was because of that desire to take on somebody who I was not. So anyway, what's your question? (laughs) Why Um, why did I become a writer instead? Yeah, just the the proclivity to put it into words. Well, I think probably um, partly because my mother encouraged me to write from a very young age. She would tell me, she would buy me notebooks and say, okay, write down what you did today. And so from a young age, I was just thinking in terms of sentences. And I think also like when I did read books and realized that, that through that book, I was allowed to be inside somebody's head, I understood that was what I was going to do. That was how I was going to try and get into somebody else's head and give it to a reader who could therefore get into the head as well. So tell me a little bit about the development of Lucy and, you know, your characters have inhabited so many of the books you wrote. It's like you have a community walking around in your head with you (laughs) as far as Lucy goes and wanting to write about the same people all the time. Right. You know, when I started out with my career, it never occurred to me that I would be writing characters that would show up again later. Um, It's just something that honestly just happened. Like Olive showed up again. She just showed up. So I had to write about her again. And then um, with Lucy, my name is Lucy Barton. I really thought that was probably going to be the only Lucy book. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait, William, William, her husband, William, she sidestepped him very deliberately. And my name is Lucy Barton. Let's, let's take a look at William 
And so Lucy came back to talk about her husband and oh, William. And then no sooner had I turned that in, um, but we all had to go into lockdown and I, and they were still so much in my head that I thought, oh, wow, what would happen if they got like stuck together in lockdown, just stuck together in some house by the sea? So that's, that's how it came about. I think they are all so real to me that they seem to be available, you know, wanting to be written about again. But, um, but it wasn't anything that I ever started out planning. Do you walk around in your day-to-day life with these people in your head now? I do. Um, I, I mean, with whatever it is that I'm working on at the moment, I do. I am thinking about them a great deal. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Lucy. She's so thoughtful. She had a, a very difficult upbringing. She loves her daughter so much. The way that you write her voice is very, there's no nonsense involved in there. She's right. very straightforward. And I'm wondering yeah. how the development of the character happened for you, how how you wanted to present yeah. her. You know, it, it, it was all her voice um, because I, except for the, prologue to the Burgess voice, I hadn't written anything in first person for years and years and years. And so, but her, her voice came to me, not so much her character, but her voice. And then I realized her voice is her character and her voice felt like very thin gold thread that sort of came down in front of me. And if I could catch that voice, then I could be with Lucy. I could do her on the page. So it was very important to get her voice and be able to hold on to it. Um, and, and so that's how she came into being, really. Maybe it's hard to get it out of your head? It's pretty much gone right now because of something else that I'm working on. But when it was there, I just kept trying to concentrate really, really hard on getting her voice because she is her voice. One of the the tropes in the book for her and some of the other characters have to do with affairs and being cheated on. And I wanted to ask you what you feel like that brings out in a, in a fictional or, or real human character and, and why that was of interest to you. Well, first of all, because it's immediately dramatic, you know, when you're, when you're looking for stuff on the page, you know, a, a super happy, placid marriage. I don't think it's going to go that far on the page. So it it was, you know, it's there for the drama of it. And then also it was very, very interesting for me to realize that, you know, Lucy and William continue to have a relationship in spite of all these different things that happened to them in their past. And when I wrote Oh, William, I was aware of that. And then even more so as I was writing Lucy by the Sea, it was very interesting for me when I listened to their dialogue that I was writing, obviously, but their dialogue came to me in a way that I understood, huh, these people really know each other in a way that even transcends the fact that they met when they were young. They just know each other in a particular way. And that was interesting to me as I, as I listened to their dialogue. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. The premise of the book generally is that, you know, the pandemic is starting and William is Lucy's ex-husband and he comes to pick her up in New York and says, you got, we have to get out of here. And they go to Maine and he's, he's very, he's a protector of his family. He makes sure his daughters are fine. He gets everyone out of New York that he can And they're having a conversation shortly after they get there. And Lucy's feeling, she's kind of feeling a little frustrated with him that he wasn't maybe nice to her at times when she just wanted tenderness from, Mm -hmm. from him. Mm -hmm. And he, she mentions that to him and he says, Lucy, he said, he said it with difficulty. Lucy, yours is the life I wanted to save. I just like my heart just it brings tears yeah. to my eyes. It's such a beautiful line just in that yeah. it embedded in that line yeah. is the fact that out of all the people in his life, she was the one. Right. But I thought it was also like a really unique way of writing the sentence where you said, Lucy, yours is the life I wanted to save. Not that I wanted right. to save your life. And I'm wondering if right. you remember writing that sentence and, and phrasing it that way. I do remember writing that sentence and, and it did come out that way the first time um, I wrote that sentence because I, I could just picture William sort of leaning, you know, against the wall, standing there in, in the living room and, and just, you know, very tired, um, worried, and and then almost to the point of, of tears where he said, Lucy, yours is the life I wanted to save. So it came out that way. Yeah, it did. It's just a different way of saying it. And when, when you think yeah. about writing, like, I don't know how much you think about that, like the order of words and the syntax of things and how it lands on the page, but yeah, how, I think about that a lot. yeah, like how painstaking is that for you? And does that usually come out in the first draft or does it come out later? You know, um, it comes out more and more in first drafts, but I, I notice even in my emails, I've noticed lately Oh yeah, um, I flip words. I don't. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I mean, like, I will. I can't even give an example, but I will. I will write a sentence with a word that would ordinarily come after another word, and and I will put it before that word, or vice versa. And I've I've noticed that. And so I think when I wrote "Yours is the life I wanted to save," I think that was intuitive to have the accent on yours. You know, I I just think at this point. I've written enough so that most of these things or the, or at least these pieces of dialogue will come out in their first draft, even though I'll clean them up and stuff like that. But the syntax and the way the words are arranged is a little different. And it's very important to me to have the sentence land on the reader's ear 
in a way that is comfortable. Yeah. Does that take other readers to help you know that, or have you done it enough that you can just tell? I think at this point I've done it enough that I can just tell. I think, I think that's probably the case. Yeah. In the book, because Lucy's a writer, I think she's having a conversation with William later in the book and Oh no, it's, it's with Bob Burgess. They're, they're really good friends. And Mm -hmm. he is telling her like, you've helped people with your books in the world. And I'm wondering what you, how you as a writer conceive of that, like are books meant to be helpful? Well, they've certainly helped me. I mean, I think there's all sorts of answers to that. You know, they can be entertaining or they can be helpful or they can be distracting and they can they can do all sorts of different things for people but the kind of book that i'm interested in reading myself is a book that somehow helps me and by helps me i mean gets me into a different person's head helps me understand what it's like to be a different person helps me have more empathy um and that's the kind of book that i want to be writing and so when you think about this book for the reader is there something that you secretly or not so secretly hope that it gives them Well, you know, I'm always thinking about the reader. I think about the reader all the time because the reader is a part of what I'm doing. So it's not, um, it's not like the reader ever, ever goes away from me. And, and I'm feeling, I always feel like, okay, reader, let's see what, what do you need right now? And what can I help you out with right now? Um, so the reader is a really big part of my, of my writing process. And then I think what I want, you know, I guess what I hope is that Oh, you know, if a reader could just even for a few moments, put a book down and feel that they've been understood, or that they understand something that they didn't understand before, or even if they could just have just a moment of two, or two of um, just some sort of sense of transcendence for just a little bit to realize, oh, okay, it's just life, we're all in this together you know, I'm not alone in all this or something like that. That's really what I'm hoping to be able to give to the reader. Have you had a transcendent moment like that lately with any art form? And if so, what was it? Um, yeah, there's a, a pianist that I just discovered. Um, her name is, I'm going to mispronounce her name because I'm so bad at this. And she, it's a French name, but her name is Elena Grimaud, um, G-R-I-M-A-U-D. And, and I was just, um, I just came across her on my Pandora station and I thought, wait a minute, who is this? And it was just amazing. Um, her, her piano playing was just amazing. So, uh, yeah, I have felt that recently through her. It's such an incredible thing. And I'm wondering if that's, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's the only purpose of art, but it's pretty amazing when art can do that. Yeah. I know it, it really is. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, in, in your novel, you foreshadow. So there's certain parts where you say, you know, I'm going to tell you about this rescue story, but not quite yet. Or the second rescue story right. arrived a month later and you have that sprinkled through. And I'm wondering as a craft device, and maybe it's yeah. just part of who Lucy is, Um, If you can talk about that. Well, you know, this was a very tricky thing because 
um, I'm writing about a period of time where nobody is doing anything except sitting in their house with either alone or their partner or their apartment. So the sense of time during particularly that first year of the pandemic, it was like time just sort of imploded. It became something quite different. And that was very, um, that was the biggest challenge for me was how do I get that on the page? And also at the very same time, keep a narrative thrust going forward. So um, those things that I sprinkled out were there to let the reader know, don't worry, something's going to happen. <laughs> you know? What's interesting about that is that there's a line in there late, late in the book where Lucy says, it is a gift in this life that we do not know right. what awaits us. And I love yeah. that idea that it's true. Like we don't know the yeah. date, date of our death. We don't know what's going to happen. And then at the same time, you're kind of contrasting with the foreshadowing. So I loved the sort yeah. of dichotomy of that. Yeah. Thanks. Cause that was a good, that was a line that was, that's one of my favorite lines in the book actually. So thank you for, for uh, mentioning that. Yeah. How do you approach that in your own life? Like, is does that is not knowing what's going to happen in your own life a source of excitement? Is it tension? Is it how does that sit with you? You know, it's funny because it really wasn't until I wrote that line and I realized, oh, that's such a true line that every so often I do I do think of it and I think, well, yeah, it is a it is a really great thing that we don't know what awaits us. I'm more aware of what is awaiting me. I think as a result of having written that line, actually. <laughs> But there's a sense of wonder, some excitement and, and anxiety. And Lucy, um, she almost transcends this because she has flashes. Like she knows things. She has like yeah. an intuition about her. Yeah. Um, and I was curious to ask about including this in her character. And if you have those. Well, you know, it was fun. I mean, like, I think, I can't remember, but I think in, in My Name is Lucy Barton, she talks about her mother's visions. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting. Because if anybody was going to have a vision, it would be Lucy Barton. I mean, of my characters, you know, because she's just, she just feels so um, almost of the spirit world in a way. And I don't, I mean, she's a person. I'm not, I'm not trying to make her sound woo-woo, but I'm just saying, so the idea of pushing it a little bit and having her sort of have visions or having at least deep, deep intuitions was really a part, a believable part of who she could be. Alongside that, she has this fear in the book that her mind is going, that she's getting dementia or something. I was thinking about, you know, Lucy has been uprooted from her one place that she considered home, which is New York. She's lost her second husband. I mean, all of these things have happened recently to Lucy. And I think I was just trying to inhabit the stunned sense that somebody like Lucy would feel at, at such a time in her life. And it, it's not that she was older, although she is older, but it was, it was just a sense of Lucy is absolutely stunned. You know, she's a very sensitive person. And so she's stunned with, with grief and also with being uprooted and with not knowing about her daughters. And so I think that's what I was trying to get at by worrying about her mind going yeah. is that she just can't, she can't get her feet under her for a while. Yeah. And I think, you know, she's in the middle of like the most unstable 
right. for many people, you know, to, to right. live through right. COVID. And right. what was your experience of writing about COVID while sort of simultaneously living in it? It was a very, very strange experience because I've never, I've never done something so close to what was happening, you know, um, it, w- it was really interesting, but I think what, what helped me, well, I know what helped me was just looking at everything, um, through Lucy's eyes because, you know, um, she had never seen the main coastline, for example. And of course the main coastline to me is as familiar as my arm. And so I started to look at the coastline through Lucy's eyes and I realized, wow, this is really amazing. So everything that happened, I would, you know, I would really try and concentrate at some point on what does this feel like through Lucy's eyes or through Lucy's heart. So um, that, that was helpful to me to be able to do. Did it take away any of your, I don't know if you had anxiety about COVID, but if you did. Oh, I had so much anxiety, yeah. I mean, it just gave me something to work on. Yeah. So that was good. <laughs> so throughout the book, in addition to sort of the the pandemic going on and her being gone from New York, which was hard because they were in Maine. And I'm sure this happened in a lot of rural places in America. But in your novel, the people who are were, you know, lifelong Mainers did not yeah. appreciate the New Yorkers coming and right. they yeah. got yelled at a lot or mm-hmm. had notes on their car, like go back to New York. Right. And I'm wondering if you, you saw this with your own eyes and, and including that in the novel. I didn't see it with my own eyes, but I heard reports of that. And, and there, there were different reports in the newspaper sometimes about it, but I also heard different personal reports of this happening. So I knew that it was true. In addition to the the COVID and being dislocated, she had recently, it was maybe been a year since her husband died. Um, right. And she really, he was a musician and she really loved him and was mourning him while at the same time living with right. her ex-husband and going I through know. this pandemic. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about writing about loss and how you hold that with so many other things at the same time. That part of the book took more drafts for me because I wasn't sure how to, how often to mention David, um, how to mention David. Um, And that, that was a, that was a little bit of a challenge for me to work out how much the reader needed to know that she was thinking about him. Obviously she would be thinking about him, but how much did the reader need to know about that? So that was um, something that I had to balance as I was sort of putting the book together and trying to read it as a whole, you know, to figure out, okay, is there too much David here? Is there not enough? Um, You know, that kind of thing. And do you eventually kind of work that out on your own? Like, do do the pages sort of tell you on their own or do you? Yeah, I mean, you know, yes, you know, by the time, by the time I just keep rewriting it and going through it and rearranging it and, and thinking, okay, well, this scene should come here and this scene should come there. And, you know, just, just living inside of the manuscript for, you know, a year, um, it does seem to sort of settle itself out, but you do have to, I do have to go inside the text and stay there, you know, and and figure it out. 
because now I'm going to do it by itself. <laughs> Sadly. Along with this loss are her two daughters. So she has two, right. two daughters in their 30s and they are with William and she's really worried about them too. And they're both right. um, married and dealing with their own issues of right. love and fidelity and questioning that. And I was thinking, you know, talking about empathy, like we really conveyed what it must feel like, you know, when they say like your kid is like your heart outside your body, like what it was mm. like for her to watch yeah. them go through their pain. And yeah. I wanted to ask yeah. you just about writing that and including those right. elements. Right. Exactly. Well, I have um, one daughter. She's my only child. And I, I mean, I just love her so much <laughs> that um, it was that part of this story was accessible to me in particular, just because I know what it's like to love, you know, a daughter so much and to, you know, to worry and to uh, wonder and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, that, that was accessible to me because of my own child my own child. Yeah. One of the things you wrote kind of in the middle of the book, she was just thinking about her kids and she was thinking about the last time she picked up her children. Yeah. I know. Oh, it was so yeah. sweet. You yeah. Were, thank you for noticing that. Cause I, yeah. Thanks. It was just beautiful. Cause you're basically yeah. saying like, you don't know. That's the, right. la the last time you pick up your kids, you just don't know. I know. I know. And it I kind know, of goes right? back to that line that you said about, um, you know, that this idea that it's a gift in this life that you do not know what awaits right. us. Because right. exactly. it, if you were picking up your kids and you knew it was the last time, you might like break it down in tears and not be able to oh function. Oh my God, you'd have to, you'd, right, you'd have to lie down for a hundred days, it seems to me. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and life just rolls on around us and off we go and then you you just don't pick up your kid again you know yeah I think there's like a thread I felt a thread in this novel and I'm not sure if it's conscious for you that that had so much to do with fate and sort of the existential questioning yeah. about how our life ends up you 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 have another line in there just where you say like why some people are luckier than others. Like why are some people lucky? And right. do you have any beliefs about that? No, but I think about it a lot. Um, especially as I get older, um, the sense of why some people are so have so much misfortune in their lives and why other people are just born into luckier circumstances. I just, I can't figure it out myself. And same with their nature. I think you write, like, who knows right. why people are different. That's we are right. born with a certain nature, I think, and then the world takes its swings at us. Yeah. But why we're born with the nature that we're born with, I, um, that's a question that I don't have an answer for. And it's kind of like you're, that nature is somehow up against the world and what it presents right. you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's, that's always an ongoing process of mixing the two. But, um, but I think we do start out with a nature. I mean, I think we are born with a certain kind of nature. Um, myself, I don't think we're born blank slates. Is what I, mean. 
I mean, one of the things that Lucy does to almost evade the nature she was born with or the life she was born with is she had a really difficult mother. So she has a fake fake mother and she has conversations with this fake mother to almost rewrite herself, but also soothe herself. Yeah, exactly. And that came to me and I thought, oh, oh, this is actually, I think this is going to work because Lucy is an imaginative person. And so she, you know, she's a writer. She can make up characters. She can make up stuff. And then I realized at some point she can make up a mother, which, which is soothing to her after having such, um, such a different kind of experience with her real mother. One of the things you say in the book, you say it twice, actually, um, in two different ways. But at the very end, you say, we're all in lockdown all the time. Yeah, I think, I think at that point in the book, I realized that, you know, Lucy has already said her, her childhood was a lockdown, and that's much more specific to Lucy. But then at that point in the book where she understands that we're all in lockdown all the time, we just don't know it. Um, I, I thought that was just a broader sense of looking at the situation. I mean, it wasn't her specific childhood anymore. She just was sort of understanding that in a way we're all in lockdown in the sense that, you know, we're all, we're all just working through life without quite knowing why or what we're doing, but most of us are doing the best that we can. I think that was what, you know, I had in mind there at that point. Do you think books can get us out of lockdown? Yeah, I hope they. I hope they can for, like I said, just a few moments anyway. And then as far as writing, one of the things that uh, Lucy says in the book, because she's a writer, is that she says, I used to tell my students to write against the grain, go outside your comfort level. What What is that experience for you? Right. Well, that, I mean, you know, it's like to take on, like, to take on the point of view, I mean, if you're in a, let's say you're at a party or something and, you know, somebody is just not likable and sort of obnoxious or something, you know, then I've, I've always found it interesting to, as a writer, try and write from that person's point of view of the party, let's say, you know, not, not from one's own point of view, but from the most difficult person in the room's point of view to inhabit him without judgment or her without judgment. You know, that sort of thing, I think, is where interesting things come from. Now, Lucy is not, you know, in my way of thinking, she's not the most obnoxious person in the world at all. So it doesn't really apply to her per se. I mean, of my writing of Lucy per se, but certainly somebody like Olive Kittredge, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to take on, you know, the most difficult person in the room and, and see what that feels like. What has that taught you? Well, it's taught me, I mean, I think it's taught me to be much more empathic because when I write about my characters, I don't judge them. And that's really, for me, that's one of the most freeing and wonderful parts of being a writer is to be able to suspend judgment on, on these people that I write about. You know, I really don't care how badly behaved they are because I'm just there to record it. Whereas in real life, you know, we do tend to be judgmental and, you know, I think we sort of have to be in order to move, maneuver our way around. But um, but to just be able to let go of that and to write about people like Olive Kittredge, I think it's, it's been helpful for me. It's taught me that, okay, 
there they are, just doing their thing, whatever, you know, trying to get through. Does that change how you view people in your everyday life because of that exercise? Um, I think it does a little bit. Yeah, it does. One other thing I wanted to ask you about Lucy's character is there's, there's at times when there's shame for her. There, yeah. There was a scene where she felt a lot of shame in a classroom. Well, shame is shame is what she grew up with, you know. She felt shame every single day at school when the kids would say, your family stinks. She felt shame probably even in her house because there were such, you know, horrifying things going on. So Lucy's entire background is sadly one of shame. And yet, you know, in O. William, when he pulls the car over and he says, Lucy, I married you because you were filled with joy. I thought that was such an interesting line when I wrote that because I realized, wait a minute, she is. That's Lucy. She is filled with joy. Her nature was able to be a joyful nature in spite of all that shame. And so, and yet the shame sits there and, and it can come back in a second, you know, when it, when it gets, I guess the word would be triggered. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the contemporary word. But, you know, it, it can show itself up again very quickly for Lucy because it was such a part of her background. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Right. I will read um, just a couple of paragraphs from a William Trevor story because I have read William Trevor's stories forever and ever, and I have two different copies of them. Um, I just love him. So I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs of a story called An Afternoon. Jasmine knew he was going to be different. No way he couldn't be. No way he'd be wearing a baseball cap backwards over a number one cut or be gawky like Lukey Giggs or make the clucking noise of that Darren Finn made when he was trying to get a word out. She couldn't have guessed. All she knew was he wouldn't be like them. Couldn't be. He'd put you in mind of the raw deal drummer, whatever his name was, of Al and Doc Martin. But the boy at the bus station wasn't like that either. And he wasn't a boy, not for a minute. He was the only person waiting who was alone apart from herself. And he didn't seem interested in the announcements about which buses were arriving or about to go. He didn't look up when people came in. He hadn't glanced once in her in her direction. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? Oh, I just, you know, um, I just love, I just love this story. I love um, almost all of these stories. There, there's a gentleness to Trevor. Um, and, and yet he uses, he's so concise and the details that he chooses are um, amazing. You know, like the clucking sound that the one guy made or the, you know, the haircut of the other guy, just a few details. So we get situated right away, but this woman thinks that this guy's going to be different. Um, and he does that. He chooses details that will position you immediately in, in some ways. And then, and yet there's always this thing, such a gentle warmth to how he writes. I think he's very, very empathic as a writer. And you were speaking of this a little bit, but can you read a passage that was tricky or hard to write for you? Right. This is a passage um, that starts the chapter, the second chapter, and it's about her husband, David. And um, like I said, there were different difficulties I had in trying to figure out how to get David on the page 
since he was obviously not going to be in the book itself. So here's a paragraph about this. About my husband, David, I thought, of course, of him a great deal during this time. I thought how he had had a bad hip from a childhood accident and so couldn't exercise much. And I thought, oh, God, he would probably have died with this virus. Also, he had been a cellist with the Philharmonic, and they were closed down now. All Lincoln Center was closed down. This baffled me. I could not grasp it. I mean, it made David seem even more gone to me somehow. When I went for my walks, I would think, David, where are you? And also, I could not listen to the classical music he had played. I had the station on my phone, and once when I turned it on during a walk to listen to through my earphones, the music seemed to absolutely assault me with a screeching kind of vengeance. Do you want to say anything more about that? Well, I figured, um, I mean, I had worked my way a number of times to get that paragraph the way it is on the page. And so I realized, okay, she ends up with it, you know, that this beautiful music that she had loved hearing him play is screeching at her with a vengeance. I thought, okay, well, that's, a, that's a good way to end that section, <laughs> screeching with a vengeance instead of being beautiful music. Where do you write? I can write anywhere, actually, but most of my writing takes place in a studio that I have in town here over the bookstore. It's a room completely of my own, and it's just wonderful. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> you know, I I don't seem to ever be able to get away from my writing. Um, you know, it's helpful to, you know, be with talking with my husband or with my friends or something like that, because that's, that's a, um, an outlet that makes me stop thinking about my work. But if I'm, if I'm on my own or walking around, or even if I'm playing the piano, which I do every day for an hour, I still, I'm, if I'm really into what I'm writing about, I, I don't seem to be able to get away from it for very long. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a friend, Kathy Chamberlain, and I met her 38 years ago when I first moved to New York. I met her the first couple of weeks that I was in New York, and she has been my first reader for 38 years, and she's wonderful. I feel like she, I just feel like she intuitively understands what I'm trying to do, and she's the only person I trust <laughs> with my first drafts. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I've had many, many, many rejections. Um, and there's nothing romantic or fun about rejection. Um, that's not been true. I mean, that's true for me. There's just been nothing fun about it at all. But I dealt with it by, um, by understanding that my work was not yet quite good enough. I think that's what I took away from all those rejections, um, that I just needed to keep working at it and it would get better. And I think it did. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is quotidian. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Oh, thank you. I really, really appreciate you. You're, you were very um, wonderful with your observations about the book. Thank you so much. If you like today's show with Elizabeth Strout, check out my first interview with her on her novel, The Burgess Boys. We talked about writing, prologues, changing points of view, and experimenting on the page. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 380 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. 
You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers coming up in the next few months on first draft interviews with Peter Orner, Peter Turchi and Katie Standifer. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes first draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.